Nobody's listening. That's his message. Uh, so let's pray that that would not be true of us. That we would hear his message, respond to it rightly. Father, thank you that you are a personal, relational, speaking God. A God who has spoken through history and continues to speak to us today. We, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to remember that we have heard your voice tonight when your word was read. And we want to ask that we would continue to hear your voice. And I ask that you would still our hearts and clear our minds that we would be able to hear it, to enjoy it, to be comforted by it, to be challenged by it, and to respond to it rightly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, life that you heard um, advertised and something we put on a lot, and we really want you to be inviting your friends too. Um, the people that come along to life, one of the biggest doubts and objections that they bring to the things of Christianity and Jesus is simply, it's irrelevant. What's the relevance of Jesus to my life? Um, and as you talk to your friends, as you mix in the community, I'm, I'm sure you'll hear this kind of thing, that aren't these just ancient stories that we can leave in the dark ages? You know, we're children of the Enlightenment now. Reason is our most supreme authority, not a bunch of ancient documents. Christianity is for simple, weak, gullible people who need a clutch. Hello! <laughs> Woo! And whilst we've got a little interruption, um, there's something kind of burping and buzzing through this speaker up here. If you can just kill that, that'd be awesome. Um, where were we? Thanks, mate. Um, where were we? Yeah, children of the Enlightenment. Not gullible. Just sweet. Ah, it's nice to keep it real, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to do my best. And I've just pumped a double shot into me. I'm absolutely smashed and just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, let's see how we go. All right. Oh, totally lost that introduction. Do people look at you and think, you're a fool? You're a fool. Come on. These things are ancient, superstitious stories. Wake up, grow up. Use reason and get over these kind of pipe dreams that you keep going on about. This day of judgment that you keep telling me to worry about. Or this heaven which is going to meet your deepest desires. No more mourning, pain, tears, death. Whatever. As Christians, we are never asked to turn off our thinking and just go with our gut. Go with our feeling, which you will find in so much spirituality out there. No, no, no. The Bible's response to that is, well, you're right and wrong about this reason thing. You're wrong that it is our absolute authority. No, no, no. 
The word of God holds that place, always has and always will. But you're right that you need to use your reason, that you need to think into it, and that you then need to make a response to it. And the Bible calls us to put our trust in unseen realities. Did you catch those pictures in Revelation? If you want to be laughed at, just tell anyone anything from Revelation. You know, this just sounds crazy, doesn't it? This city dressed as a bride coming down. But we are called to trust in these unseen realities as if they were concrete realities. But we're never asked to put our trust in those things without having seen concrete realities in history. And there's many places that we can go where God has acted in history. One of the places that we can go is Isaiah and chapter 1, where we are tonight. And I'm kind of introducing this to you so that you can see the relevance of Isaiah. See, I know that a lot of you trust God, you love God, you hunger for His Word. And it doesn't matter what it is, where it is, you're just there. Give it to me. I want to hear it. I want to know it. I want to learn more to it. But if we're honest, there's some of you go, can't we just stick with Jesus and the Gospels? What's the relevance of a book written best part of 3,000 years ago? Isaiah, what's the point of this kind of thing? Well, <clears throat> there's many reasons that I could give you for why this is relevant. But one of them is, <clears throat> I want to show you that Isaiah found himself in a world that is so similar to the world that you and I find ourselves in. And we actually get some severe warnings in Isaiah that apply to us. And we see some amazing good news, which also applies to us. Now, there's actually a lot in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we've had read. So what I'm going to do tonight is boil it down and bring to you the tale of two cities that he gives us. One of the cities, we've got some literature buffs, some Charles Dickens buffs down here. Well done. This is not Charles Dickens style, this is Isaiah style. Two cities. One of them is a city of a whore. This is the city that Isaiah belonged to. The other city is a faithful city, the one that he longed for. Now, the city of a whore, that's offensive, isn't it? Yeah. That's the language that God uses to describe this city. And I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think of a sleazy city of a whore. Um, Maybe some dodgy part of Gosford, um, maybe, um, oh, let's face it, all of Gosford's pretty dodgy. <clears throat> maybe King's Cross, if you've been unwise or unfortunate enough to find yourself there. But looks can be deceiving. See, the defining features of Jerusalem in the time of Isaiah were prosperity. Things were booming. These guys were living a life of affluence. They had Jerusalem fair. You know, they could go in, look at anything, buy anything. Consumerism was alive and well. It was a place of great tolerance where you had the freedom to be whoever you want to be, except a prophet who would preach against your lifestyle. Now, we don't know for sure, but Isaiah is probably the one spoken of in Hebrews who was sawn in two. 
These guys did not like. They were very intolerant of a guy preaching the truth. It was a place of syncretism. That is, where you mix a little bit of that religion with a little bit of that ideology and you just kind of stir your own spirituality together and this is it for me. This is how I'm going to live. Sound familiar? Isaiah's city of Jerusalem is not too different from our own backyard. But when we scratch under the surface of prosperity and tolerance and syncretism, we actually find corruption, violence, oppression, godlessness, decay. This is our world, people. This is our world. Um, a couple of months ago, I was part of this event at Avoca Beach Theatre. Uh, some of you were there. It was a, a showing of a film called Decadence, <clears throat> which is a secular documentary. Um, it was a great event, community event. After the film was shown, there was a panel, um, three other people and myself kind of engaging with the issues of the film and the people who were asking questions and debating, that kind of thing. Um, but it was interesting because this film... Um, aim to put its finger on the reasons for why our Western civilization is in decadence, is actually declining. Um, and it was interesting. A lot of people there were actually, I think, shocked. To, oh, really? Look around. We're, we're doing just fine. But as every civilization through history has risen and fallen, this guy's thesis is that we're well and truly on the way down. Many people would agree with him. But it was interesting. This guy's a secular guy to consider his reasons for this decadence. And he points to consumerism, family breakdown, and a moving away from our Christian foundations. Interesting. Secular guy. This is actually a very similar diagnosis to the Jerusalem, the city of a whore that Isaiah finds himself in. So, speaking of Isaiah and his time, let's go there. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now this first verse gives us the what, the who, and the when of all of Isaiah. Let me move through it kind of quickly. Um, the who is the man Isaiah. Uh, we don't know much about him outside of the Bible. Um, Chapter 6 tells us that he was just a man of the nation, nothing super special about him. But chapter 6 we'll find he actually gets this amazing experience. God brings him into his presence and Isaiah will hit the deck. He sees the glory of God and it totally changes his outlook on life. The what is the vision, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now notice that it is a singular vision. Not visions. And that's important to keep in mind as you read through and work through Isaiah because it's actually a pretty hard book to work through. One of the reasons is he jumps around a bit and it seems like he's talking about different things and different places and different events. But it's important to know that this vision or revelation, if you want another word, is one revelation from God to Isaiah for his people. Now, it's a big vision. The concepts are massive and the time that he takes to deliver it is big. There's 66 chapters. It's huge. Try reading it in one sitting. I had to do it for um, Bible college once, and um, it took me like most of the weekend. Not in one sitting, but it's massive. It's hard. It's a daunting vision. It'll challenge your view of God. 
your small view of God, your deficient view of God. See, we'll find that God is not actually a safe God. As if he's some impotent grandpa in the sky that when you're done and dusted with your life, he'll just welcome you into his fluffy heaven. That's not the God we find in Isaiah. He presents himself as the only God, the only true king of the heavens and the earth, who is good and to be trusted. And he sits on his throne and says, here I am. You're going to have to deal with me. And you must deal with who you are in light of who I am. But it's an encouraging vision. Heaps of poetic language in there. Um, One thing to bear in mind as you're reading this, we've just come out of Luke, which was a gospel, which was narrative. Most people find that fairly straightforward to work through. A lot of this is poetry, which for some people, particularly in a uh, a kind of Twitter um, culture, it's just bizarre. Some of you will love it. He uses just amazing words and images to give us insights into the character and the heart of God. Don't miss them. God's opening up his heart to us. Um, He he uses um, poetry like, the earth's people are like grasshoppers. Be careful how you read Isaiah. You'll freak yourself out if you read it literally. Now, of course, it is literal in that it's literature, and it is literally pointing to something, but it uses poetic language to do that. And sometimes it moves from different genres, so you're going to have to do some thinking. What's he talking about? What's going on? But it's also a focused vision, a vision that concerns Judah and Jerusalem. But as we'll see tonight, it speaks to his moment in history, but actually goes beyond into our time and beyond our time. This is a huge vision, an amazing book. Now, the third thing is the time. Notice we're given four kings there. And to kind of put this um, vision and the things that we'll work through through this term in a bit of context, it's helpful to do a little bit of history to understand what's going on. So to do this, um, we've got a map, if we can bring this up. And let me um, kind of strip it down a little bit, but um, bring you up to speed with what's happening. Um, This is ancient Israel times, ancient uh, Mesopotamia. And in the top right-hand corner, you've got Assyria, Egypt down in the bottom left-hand corner. Now, the yellow and the purple, some of you, if you grew up, you know, with all this stuff, are familiar with this, but for others of you, this will be new, and it's important to get this part. Um, That is Israel in the yellow and Judah in the purple. Now, these used to be and were intended to be one nation, the nation of God. Uh, And in 1000 BC, God gave King David the promise that there would be someone on his throne forever. But 70 years later, these 12 tribes have fought as brothers do, and they've split into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern. And so the northern kingdom is known as Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And Jerusalem is the city within Israel. Judah. Now, we'll find that both of these kingdoms are in a mess, but particularly the northern kingdom. These guys are extra bad. Judah just do a little bit better. Okay, so you've actually got to do some thinking when you read about Israel in Isaiah. You've got to ask yourself, is he talking about the nation of Israel, all of God's people, or is he talking about that northern kingdom? The only way that you'll work it out is the context. It's not that hard. Look around. You'll figure it out. Now, um, There's a bit of um, military and political power play going on. 
And so um, let me kind of take you through how that looks because um, Assyria is the big guy of the day. So we've got some big boys and we've got some little boys. Assyria, if we jump to the next slide, is the Facebook. Now come with me on this one because this morning I used countries but I figure if you paid as little attention to history as I did, um, you might not get kind of modern history. So let's go with what's fresh. Assyria is the Facebook of the ancient world. Yeah? They're dominating. They're huge. Egypt, down the bottom left-hand corner, is the MySpace. <laughs> All right? They were big ones, but there I has been. Then we've got Syria. No, no, sorry, Babylon. Now, Babylon, now, jury's out on Google Plus, isn't it? I don't know about you, but we'll see. Babylon becomes the nation that would rise to power. Okay, so they're the up-and-coming one. You know, watch out. Now, Syria, not to be confused with A-Syria, messenger. Small player, you know, not a big deal. Then we've got two more. The first one is Israel. Fango. Anyone use Fango? <laughs> you heard of it though, yeah? Exactly, that's the point. You haven't even heard about it. No one had heard about Israel. They were quite an insignificant nation. And then we have Judah, which is <laughs> EV Hub. Now, I know this is a bit of an internal joke, sorry if you don't get it. EV Hub is kind of our church's um, online kind of tool at communicating and do a bunch of things. And I'm not knocking it, all right? It's really good. Um, but it's just a small player. It's not going to take on Facebook anytime soon. So hopefully that just kind of puts this ancient world into perspective with you. <laughs> now... What you need to know is that there's some wars going on. I didn't have time to kind of animate this kind of stuff. could have been fun having these fights. But <laughs> what we've got is... Um, oh, yeah, and then there's Yahoo out in the Assyrian desert. No one goes there, yeah? So <laughs> what do we do with this? Syria, Damascus. These guys are fearful of Facebook, rightly so. And so is Fango. And so what they do, they go, let's talk, let's get together and let's take on Assyria. But you know what? We're still not big enough to take down Facebook. So let's go hassle Judah and say, get on board, let's go take on Facebook. But Judah doesn't want to. And so there's a fight. MSN and Fango take on EV Hub. <laughs> EV Hub's the holy city, yeah? But... E.V. Hub, in chapter 7, we'll find out, is told, trust God, not MSN or Fango. <laughs> oh, no. But they freak out. They don't trust God, and they run up to Facebook. What's his name? Zuckerberg. Zuck what's his Old mate. Yeah. And they say, help me, help me. And so, with E.V. Hub getting hammered by MSN and Fango... Facebook come down and save the day. But it's painful. But Facebook, being the evil empire that they are, <laughs> kept coming, kept pursuing Judah. Okay, so there's a couple of crises going on. Um, and helpful to bear those in mind, hopefully, maybe not, as you come through Isaiah. Told you he's relevant. He's up to speed with social net networks. Okay, background. 
issues, conflict, tiny little Judah, Jerusalem, but this is what this vision deals with. So let's get to the text. Let's get real. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, straight away, Isaiah's hearers will be going, Oh, no. Now, we don't get that. Part of the reason we don't get that is we haven't done digging deep of the first five. You need to do that. It'll be great. Why? Checking out Genesis through Deuteronomy, you'll find all these new beginnings and these um, um, births of, of people, of sin, of promises. And one of the promises that was made in Deuteronomy chapter 4 was when God entered into covenant relationship with his people. He married them, which is why we get the language of a whore and a faithful city, why we get language of bride. He entered into covenant relationship and he called the heavens and the earth as a witness to say, witness this, I'm entering into covenant relationship and I will do good to my people if they choose to follow me and trust me and obey me. But if they don't, I will actually become their enemy and things will go horribly wrong. Heavens and earth, you are witness to this day. That was 700 years earlier than Isaiah's time. Here we find ourselves 700 years later. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. The Lord has spoken. What are they witness to? I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. They are witness to rebellious children. Now, most of you don't have kids, so you don't know what rebellious children are like. Enjoy it. It's awesome. Um, kids are cool, but they're rebellious. They're hard work. Most of you, though, do know what it's like to be a rebellious child. In fact, all of us do, some of us to greater lengths than others. But God's got more serious problems than our parents have or had. He's got a whole nation of rebellious children and we'll come to see how this rebellion is playing out but the heart of the problem is halfway through verse 4 they have forsaken the Lord they've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him now what I want to point out is the stupidity of this rebellion look at verse 3 the ox knows his master the donkey his owner's manger but Israel does not know my my people do not understand. He's saying, Israel, you are more stupid than an ox and a donkey. It does not make sense that you have rebelled from me, a loving, good daddy. I mean, think about it. Come back to our original parents with the original rebellion. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. It is beautiful. They have everything that they need. They have direct access with God. They're naked. They've been given a command to go forth and multiply. Life could not have been better. God just says, but you know what? Just trust me. Just trust me. I'm going to put some bounds in place. Trust me that they're actually for your good. But of course they don't. That does not make sense. Sin, human rebellion against God is actually irrational. It doesn't make sense to rebel against a good God. I mean, it's, it's like last night I was um, driving home from church and this, this car comes fanging past and it's a ute. And uh, Saturday night, there's a bunch of guys, one of them's on the back and somehow 
He's horizontal out the back off the side. And the game is to see how close they could get to this pole without losing a head. I'm seriously driving along thinking, I'm going to get a head popping on my windscreen any moment. Now, that's rebellion of the road rules, yeah? The road rules say you must remain entirely within the vehicle and that's for your good. Simple. Yet we rebel. Our rebellion against God, our continued rebellion to distrust the bounds that he's put in place for our good does not make sense. It's stupid. Sin is stupid. And stupid is as stupid does, says Forrest. What has this stupidity led to? Well, it's led to a sick city. Verse 5. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. So what does their rebellion look like? These are God's ancient people. We'd be thinking, well, surely they've given up going to church, singing songs, reading their Bible, praying. Um, Maybe they're eating bacon and eggs on a Saturday morning instead of going to temple. No, no, no. We actually find these guys are really, really religious. Have a look at verse 11 through 16. 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? Stop bringing meaningless offerings, verse 13. Verse 14, they're remembering these special religious days, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary, weary of bearing them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, they're still praying. God, give me stuff. God, do this. God, do that. I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Now, just one thing that strikes me, actually, as I read this right now, there's an insight right there into how insanely relational our God is. He's not some cold, impersonal, distant figure. He is personal. He hates. He feels. He's pleased. He loves. This God is a relational God. But what's the problem? If they're doing all of these religious things, these sacrifices, what's the problem? Well, verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. These, have got, these guys have got the outer means of worshipping God in place, but they've lost the heart and the meaning of this worship. They've actually separated the worship of God with the way that they deal with people. We see in verse 16, 17. They're not caring for the most vulnerable in their community. The fatherless. The widow. They've split their spirituality from their morality and limited worship of God to a bunch of rituals done at a particular time at a particular place. This is the ultimate form of hypocrisy. To actually show one face to God and another to those around you. Now I just want to pause here for a minute and reflect on ourselves. Now there's a, there's a danger in the Old Testament in Isaiah where we who come on this side of Jesus just go there and rip anything straight out and apply it to ourselves. So we've got to be careful of that. We've got to put it through the Jesus filter. How has that changed? What does the New Testament say about that? But see... Um, the New Testament, what does it call Christians? People who have come to God. We are called the children of God. This vision here, given to the children of God. And this warning 
that is given about worshipping God but neglecting the needs of the community is actually cranked up again in the New Testament. Uh, The Apostle John in his first letter, he actually says, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Plain and simply, if we do not care for the needs of the people in our church, in this church, in your congregation, the people that you see around you, or maybe the people who are not here now because of their needs. Then verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us that we do not know God. We do not understand who He is and what His heart beats for. Friends, there's some warnings here. There are many opportunities to meet the needs of hurting people beyond our church obviously. But if we can't even care for our own brothers and sisters, why would we think that we can care for those beyond? These are warnings here. Now, in our context, not EV, let me just give you three kind of practical things. Firstly, some of you will need to make your need made known. Humble yourself. I need help. Most of us will need to be loving enough to share the heart of God to actually then respond to those needs. But thirdly, the kind of context that we're in, a lot of you still live at home or a lot of you are not kind of on struggle street. For us, it will mean going beyond Night EV context, having met the needs in Night EV, but beyond. We are a congregation within a bigger church here and there is stacks of need. And there is then stacks of need beyond the needs of EV Church. And can I just um, tap one thing for blokes? Um, Now this, I've got to stress, this is optional. This is not a command. But can I just maybe sow a seed for you? I'm not saying that you need to chase after this. But let me just sow a seed. Do not rule out marrying a single mum. Never thought of that. All I'm saying to you, do not rule out marrying a single mum. I'm not saying that's how it'll play out. I'm not saying that's what you need to chase. I know multiple godly men who have actually looked around and go, wow, look who God's put in my path. A single mum who's come from a broken life with kids who are in a broken world. But you know what? My God is a God who, verse 2, adopts and rears children. The context of verse 2 is God from the Exodus saving his children, adopting them, tenderly raising them. I just want to put it to you. Don't rule it out. The blessing that you could be to a family that is already out there. Okay. Back to Isaiah and the warning of false religion. Notice their intent of their religious acts was to manipulate God. See, they're doing all the religious rigmarole, but they're still praying to him. God, do this, hear this, answer this. Here we have the essence of false religion. It's the notion that by my acts, whether they're sacrifices, good deeds, prayers, chants, whatever it is, I can actually manipulate God to do what I want because he owes me, because of my devotion, 
because of my discipline. Friends, that's why apart from true Christianity, every religion in our world is actually a cop-out. Anyone can do religious acts. Our human tendency has always been and continues to be the fact that the things that I do will impress God and will cause Him to owe me, be a means of manipulating Him to show me favour. But we get right here how God responds to that. He hates it. It stinks to Him. Get it out of my sight. You're only wearing yourselves out. Friends, I'm not saying this is most of you, but just ask yourself, are you playing church? Are you playing the church game? You've got it down pat because you've been doing it for ages. But you've actually found that your heart is nowhere near beating after the heart of God. But you find yourself still doing the deal. You know the things to say, when to say them. You know when to put your hands up or down. I'm not saying anything about how you express yourself. You've just got it down. But deep down, you just, 8 o'clock, I'm out of here. I'm off with my life for the week. Friends, these are serious warnings of the dangers of falling into false religion. Now, how serious is this rebellion to God? You know, most, I, I spoke to someone who goes, there's no God, but if there is, he's a nice guy in the sky, he'll forgive me, we'll be fine. Sin's no problem, is it? Let's have a look at how serious it is to God. See, when he adopted this people, he said, you guys are going to be a holy nation, set apart from any other nation, just as I, Yahweh, am set apart from any other false god. You are to reflect my complete otherness. You are to point the people to me. But, verse 21, instead of a faithful city, he got a whore. Verse 22, instead of precious metal, he got dross. Instead of fine wine, he got watered down. Shiraz. Verse 23, instead of rulers, he got rebels. And so what's God going to do? 700 years earlier, he called the whole created order as witness. If this happens, this is what I'm going to do. God did the only thing that he could do to be true to his character. He judged it. Verse 7 and 8. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. This is how seriously God takes his own word and rebellion against it. Friends, the consequences of sin are real. They are not some theological abstraction. They are powerful and they are painful and they are eternal. They were actually experienced by these people in their moment in history when the Assyrians came and smashed them. And verse 9, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been wiped out, extinct. So what does that tell you? Well, it was God's mercy in the midst of his judgment that meant there would be anyone left. You got the picture? This city? It's banged up. 
We live, we live in a banged up world. Is there any hope? At the end of that film, Decadence, um, which had shown the decline, there was actually this, um, when I was sitting up in front of people, actually this real perceptible hopelessness. People just go, where's the hope? And we're not even being smashed by the Assyrians. There's this cry for hope. But where is it? Do you know what Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said? He said, if I were God, I'd kick the world to pieces. And to the people of Isaiah's day, it felt as if he had. But thankfully, Martin Luther, you, I, is not God. It is the Holy One of Israel who is the only true God. And back in Deuteronomy 4, 700 years earlier, he said, you know what? When these people rebel, it's going to go bad, but I'm a God of mercy. And I will not, I will not completely destroy the people I've married. The mercy of God. There is hope for this city of Jerusalem. For it will become a new city. Um, I don't know, we've got the, um, the Olympics coming up. <clears throat> um, I don't know when, but soon in London. And uh, do you remember the Sydney Olympic Games, anyone? Some of you in nappies, 2000. Um, um, it was... This huge time, and it's, I bet you it's going on in London right now. I, I was working in the um, CBD of Sydney and um, just noticing in the time leading up to the Olympic Games, the city just was turned upside down. Um, the park that I would walk through, the needles on the ground were removed. The homeless people disappeared, found themselves in hostels. Um, the traffic was cut off to the inner city. You could actually get around. Uh, there was these kind of entertainment kind of just things popping up everywhere, music and food. It's just this epic place. And what happened? The nations streamed to beautiful, wonderful Sydney. There was this city that had actually been transformed. It was amazing. But of course, the Olympics finished. Boom, gone. The new city that Isaiah tells us God is creating, this city will never end. It will never decline. And he gives us a taste of it in chapter 2. Let's go and have a look. He gives us the imagery in verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what's going on here? Um, is this a, a real mountain with a real temple? Um, remember the nature of Isaiah, the poetry of it. Um, this is actually an image that he gives it. But we spoke about this last week. The temple signifies God's presence. And so in this new city, this new Jerusalem, God will be there. But this time he'll be the only king there, the only God there. No other false god around, no other false worship around. Everyone worshipping the one true God. And you catch it in verse 3. Many peoples will come. The nations will stream to it. And this would have shocked the peoples of Isaiah's time because all the nations that were doing in their time was coming to smash it and to blaspheme it. But Isaiah says, you know what? There's a time coming when the nations will come to worship Yahweh, to actually sit under his word and his will. This is a stunning message in the context of Isaiah. This is a stunning message in the context of us. 
This time is coming. There's universal peace. We fight for it, and we ought to. But we will not achieve worldwide peace until this new Jerusalem comes in its fullness. But it is coming. So the question's got to be, well, how's he going to achieve this new city? What's God going to do? This one's in such a mess. Well, we get the answer in chapter 1, verse 27. Zion will be redeemed by justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness. It's through judgment that God will bring this hope. And Isaiah doesn't give us the details just yet, but he will in chapter 53. So you keep reading on. And in chapter 53, he tells us about this servant who will suffer greatly. In fact, will become, or we, the New Testament tells us, will be the Son of God, as Israel was the Son of God. And as Israel, the Son of God, found himself beaten by God, this servant will have his whole head and his heart afflicted. And you know what? From chapter 53 in Isaiah, 700 years later, Jesus comes on the scene. The Son of God, the suffering servant, who on the cross, though never rebellious, became the rebel. Who, though being faithful to God, took on the nature of a whore. And for the first time in eternity, he found himself forsaken, spurned, and rejected by the Holy One of Israel. Jesus hung in the place of God's true enemies, you and me. Friends, it's the cross of Jesus, isn't it, where we see the ultimate judgment and the ultimate hope from this judgment. See, judgment is never God's final word for the person who would lay down their weapons against God. Hope is the last word. And you'll see this, Isaiah, over and over again. Judgment, bit of hope. Judgment. More hope. It's the storyline of the Bible. In fact, chapter 1 through to 2, what we're looking at today, actually captures the whole of Isaiah's vision. It's kind of a bit of a rehearsal of it, which covers the whole storyline of the Bible. We heard how the Bible ends with this amazing hope as the last word. And so you've got to ask yourself, don't you, how do I become a citizen of this new city? I want that city. I don't want the banged up one. I want that one. And the other question has to be, how do I remain a citizen of that city? And the answer is the same way that God gave to these people through Isaiah. Three things, to reason with God, to trust God, and to turn to God. See, verse 5, God asks his people a question. Why should you be beaten anymore? I'm asking you a question. Why? Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together says the Lord. So the first step is to reason, is to think, is to consider the place that we find ourselves. And God says, why would you continue to be my enemy when I'm actually going to make a way for you to become my friend, my child, my forgiven one? Why would you do that? Why would you stay? Think about it. Secondly, it's to trust God. We read on in 18. Here we have the gospel, by the way, just tucked up in a little bit of Isaiah. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is before the days of nappy sand and bleach. This is where if you were to spill red wine onto a white woolen garment, no matter how hard you scrubbed, you could not get it out. What's he saying? What is impossible for you to do, I, God, find possible to do. I'm going to do it. And where we stand, he has done it. We trust that he's done that. And then thirdly, we turn, verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you'll prosper. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured. We turn. And we turn because it is safe to turn. Isaiah chapter 6, we also when we get there, he sees the glory of God, he hits the deck, he knows he's dead. In fact, you look at anyone in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, who catches a glimpse of God, what do they do? They hit the deck. They know they are dead. When you see God for who he is, the Holy One, there is no way that you would want to turn to him. But he says, you know what? It's safe. I'm offering you forgiveness. Come. I want you to come. All right, I've done that. But my city still looks pretty broken. My world still has mourning, pain, crying, death. Where's this new city? When do I get there? Well, the answer, as is so often the case in the New Testament, now and not yet. Let's have a look at the now. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 12. As you're going there, let me tell you about Hebrews. It's a letter written to Christians in the New Testament on the other side of Jesus. And it's uh, written to um, Christians who were Jews, who have actually um, seen Jesus to be Messiah and trusted in him. But they're going, oh no, have we run after a false god? And this is written to these guys. Now let me just move through it quickly. But chapter 12, verse 18, to set the scene. You, Christians, of 2,000 years ago, you, Christians, sitting right here now, have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast. What's he talking about? Mount Sinai. The time when after the Exodus, God showed up. And his people trembled. Verse 22. You haven't come to that mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Verse 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Friends, you come to this new Jerusalem, this new city, when you come to Jesus, when you put your trust in him. You know when you've got to fill out your address details and it asks for a city, what do you put? Do you put Gosford because it's kind of really your closest city? I always feel a bit weird about putting Gosford as my city. You could put in New Jerusalem. <laughs> I dare you. See where it goes. If you've come to Jesus, if you put your trust in him, that's where 
you live right now. But, of course, we're not there fully yet. Or the city has not yet fully come. Clearly. And so, Isaiah chapter 2, Revelation 21, Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, these places where we get the amazing images of heaven. We await the day that Jesus returns for this kingdom to come. And I started about asking the question of relevance. Is this a pie-in-the-sky dream for weak, gullible Christians who need a crutch to get through life on? How can you be sure that that really is coming? Pretty important thing. We're hanging everything on it, aren't we? I hope we are. Well, the way that you can be sure that that is a concrete reality yet to come is by looking at history. 700 years before Isaiah, God said, you know what, this is going to happen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, chapter 30, go there later on, it's amazing. 700 years later, it happens. At the time of Isaiah, he says, 700 years from now, I'm going to send someone who's going to die, but he's actually going to conquer death. Jesus comes, comes. Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. Three days later, the tomb is empty, it remains empty. Jesus says, I'm actually coming back and I'm bringing with me, dressed up as a beautiful bride, this city. Done. 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 It's going to come. It's going to happen. Friends, let me finish by asking you, which city are you a citizen of? I know some of you are honest enough and you've been checking out the things of Jesus that you would say, you know what, I'm actually a city of the whore. The message for you tonight from Isaiah surely is get out, isn't it? Get out. It's going to fall. And get out quickly. See, the people of Isaiah's time, they thought, this isn't coming, this isn't happening. Bang, it came. Get out. You can be sure that judgment is coming based on history. Look into it. Come to life. Check these things out. Reason. God's patience didn't last forever with these people and it will not last forever with you. But secondly, you are a member, a citizen of the faithful city. This is the message for us tonight. Put your trust in the Holy One of Israel. Not for the first time, continue to trust in the Holy One of Israel. See, there was a, a moment in time when these people, Isaiah's context, had trusted in God. But through prosperity through the influence of pagan religions that actually moved their trust from God into themselves and their religious acts. Continue to trust in the Holy One of Israel. Continue to reason and trust and turn. Reason. Why would I go back to being smashed? Trust. God's done everything needed for me. Turn. Continued lives of ongoing repentance. And you'll see the new Jerusalem by grace, enabling you to continue to reason, trust and turn. Let me wrap up with chapter 2 verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This vision, this revelation, it's described as a light. And what does a light do in a dark place? It shows you things that you would not otherwise see. 
Friends, this is not just information. This is intended to be transformation, to actually shape your life. That you would walk in it. What's walking in it? Living, thinking, speaking, texting, spending your time, money, energy in light of two cities. Which one do you belong to? Which one are you walking in light of? Which one will you continue to walk in light of? Let me pray that it be the faithful one. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. That we can call you Father. Thank you that you reveal your character to us in Isaiah. And I want to ask that we would, as a people, get a bigger glimpse of who you are through this series. Would that please blow our minds as it blew Isaiah's? Would that cause us, please, to hit the deck in light of your holiness? Would that cause us to live in light of these realities that you have shown us? Father, we are sorry for the apathy that we show, apathy that comes from familiarity with these things. We're sorry. Please forgive us. We're sorry that we have not loved people in our own context, let alone beyond well. Would we be a loving people? Please, Father, would you change us? And Father, would you help us, please, to live well, to live in the light of this new Jerusalem that's coming. We long for it. We can't wait for it. And we thank you that we can be certain that it's coming because of the way that you have spoken and stayed true to your word through history. Continue, please, to encourage us in a world that would just smash you. Please, would we stand for you and hang everything on you. In Jesus' name. Amen.